Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, the best deference. On June 27th, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down an opinion in Kaiser versus Wilkie. This was a case about veterans' benefits, but it examined an important question of how much deference courts should give to agency decision-making. So joining me now to talk about how deference applies to tax regulations and what this new decision may mean for Treasury and the IRS are Steve Dixon and Kevin Kenworthy. They're attorneys at Miller Chevalier, whose practices include tax controversy and litigation. Steve, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, David. It's great to be here. Why don't we start from maybe a brief history about deference and how it's changed and why it's an important issue. Sure. Well, deference in this context refers to a handful of judicial doctrines that courts have applied from time to time to decide whether to follow or defer to an agency's interpretation of an area of law for which they're responsible. In the tax realm, for example, deference principles inform whether courts view treasury regulations to constitute binding interpretations of the code. So ultimately, understanding deference principles is necessary to understand how courts will decide close cases. It's now clear that the validity of tax regulations and other forms of IRS guidance are subject to the same scrutiny as rulemaking by any other agencies. Back in 2011, in its opinion in the Mayo case, the Supreme Court confirmed that the validity of tax regulations must be evaluated under the principles it had articulated in the 1984 Chevron decision. And as you probably know, Chevron describes a two-step analysis for determining when a court will defer to agency regulations interpreting a statute. Under step one, if the statute is clear or its meaning can be determined through the use of the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, then that's the end of the matter. There's nothing for the agency to decide. But if the statute's ambiguous, or if the law leaves a gap, under Chevron Step 2, courts must defer to an agency interpretation, even if it is not the only possible interpretation of the statute, or one that the court would have adopted on its own. And Chevron's not the only type of deference courts have deployed over time. Courts have recognized other types of deference to agency interpretations, like prior to Mayo, courts frequently applied so-called national muffler deference. National Muffler involved a regulation, and it invited a more searching examination of the meaning behind the regulation, whereas Chevron simply asked, was this a permissible or possible interpretation, full stop. So now National Muffler Dealers has been superseded for all intents and purposes in light of the Mayo case. But beyond tax regulations, courts have also applied other forms of deference. So for example, for I'll call them lesser forms of guidance, sub-regulatory guidance seems to be the term of the day, mm-hmm. like revenue rulings, revenue procedures, notices, and the like. A court will sometimes apply Skidmore deference, which is based on another Supreme Court case earlier in time. Now, Skidmore differs from Chevron in the sense that the court is to look to the reasoning behind the guidance. So if you'll examine how persuasive it was. And so some commentators, like Justice Scalia, for example, question whether Skidmore deference was deference at all. For example, if you're persuaded by the reasoning of a document, you're not really deferring to it, you're persuaded. Nevertheless, that is a a recognized form of deference. In addition, the Kaiser case dealt with yet another form of deference. We sometimes call it our deference based on another Supreme Court case or Seminole Rock deference, which was an earlier case. But basically, the the issue is whether a court should defer to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations so that if an agency promulgates regulations or other guidance and that later seeks to interpretate or clarify ambiguities in that guidance, under our, the courts are supposed to defer to that. And so that's the question in the day in the Kaiser case was whether our deference should stand today. Steve, could you tell me a little bit more about how our deference is distinct from Chevron deference? Yeah, 
And I think the distinction's important, especially because of some of the things that the court says in the Kaiser case, where they make it very clear both the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh say expressly that they are not ruling on Chevron deference. So Chevron deference is a doctrine that applies when an agency is interpreting its power under a statute. Our deference, by contrast, is, as Kevin mentioned, a way in which courts weigh the interpretation an agency puts on its own ambiguous regulation. So rather than interpreting something that Congress has drafted, they're interpreting something that they themselves have drafted. And this is an important distinction because there's essentially a a kind of bright line that you could draw here between Chevron on the one hand and our on the other. And it implicates the APA. So if you think that the Administrative Procedures Act act functions as it's intended to, which is to make agency rulemaking more like lawmaking by providing for notice and comment and providing for a period before the regulations become effective. And you think that Chevron is implicated only when, as the as the Supreme Court's decision in Mead lays out, only when an agency acts with the force of law, in the agency in interpretation acts as if it has the force of law, then there is a reason to defer in the Chevron instance without deferring in the instance under our. So there's a reason to defer to an agency interpretation that's articulated in a regulation that has the force of law and possibly not to defer to an agency interpretation under our where the agency is interpreting its own regulation. All right. So let's turn now to how this affects us in the tax world. What role does our deference play with Treasury and IRS decisions? Steve mentioned the application of the Administrative Procedures Act, and I think it's useful to recognize that tax is no longer insular or unique. The Mayo case is a very good example of that, where the Supreme Court said that interpreting tax guidance must follow the same rules as interpreting any other agency guidance. Likewise, it's now recognized that the Administrative Procedure Act applies fully to tax regulations and other forms of guidance where it applies. So in general, you would think that our should apply just like it would in any other setting. As a practical matter, our deference has not been asserted very frequently in tax litigation matters. The IRS does not assert it. In fact, we'll talk about this a bit later, but there was an IRS Treasury policy statement that indicated that they would not assert our deference in defense of sub-regulatory guidance. And in any event, the tax court has not been very hospitable to claims based on our. And as we get into Kaiser, there may be very good reasons why the tax court was actually probably prescient, that they recognized limitations that ought to be recognized for our deference. All right. You brought up this Treasury and IRS policy statement from March discussing their use of or non-use of deference. Could you explain a little bit more about what they said? Sure. I mean, on the point of deference alone, it may not say anything that's monumental or earth-shaking. I've heard some practitioners sort of refer to it as as a nothing, and I don't think that's quite right. But there's really one statement about deference in the policy statement. and the So it's a joint Treasury and IRS policy statement, and they provide that in litigation before the U.S. tax court, as a matter of policy, the IRS will not seek judicial deference under our or Chevron to interpretations set forth and sub-regulatory guidance. So there's a couple of things that jump out about this statement. One is that it's only in litigation before the U.S. tax court. So this statement does not purport to bind the Department of Justice in refund jurisdiction litigation. The other thing that's important is that they're deferring their right to assert our or Chevron 
for sub-regulatory guidance. Now, that's actually not giving up much, in, at least in terms of what they have historically done. First of all, the Department of Justice has historically not argued for Chevron deference for sub-regulatory guidance, and with good reason, because if it is the sort of thing in which an agency interpretation is not enacted as a regulation, then it doesn't have the force of law and is not the sort of thing to which Chevron would apply in the first instance. It's also generally been the case that the IRS has not argued for our deference for its sub-regulatory guidance, and again, with good reason. Here, if you can imagine the IRS putting out some sort of determination, and most of the IRS's determinations under 6110 say that they cannot be relied on as precedential. Well, it would be contradictory for them to say, taxpayers cannot rely on this published guidance. However, we think that it deserves and warrants deference under our. So there's an argument that this statement doesn't actually amount to much. I actually think, for what it's worth, that the fact that Treasury and the IRS came out with the statement at all says something. It certainly looks, as Kevin said, prescient in light of what happens in our, because they're essentially giving up something that they may not have had much of in the wake of Kaiser in any event. Let's dig into what the Supreme Court just did. We, we had this decision in Kaiser versus Wilkie. What did the court decide? Well, the court accepted certiorari in the case, specifically decide whether to overturn or modify the hour decision. And jumping ahead to the conclusion, the majority, by a five to four decision, agreed that hour would remain, but they put so many limitations on it that it arguably is only a shadow of its former self. Let's talk a bit about the what the Kaiser case involved. Kaiser was a Vietnam veteran who had applied for disability benefits back in 1982, and those benefits had been denied. He later reapplied many years later, 2006, and had new evidence to support the fact of his disability. And the Board of Veterans' Appeals agreed that he was then eligible. But relying on interpretation of a VA regulation, they determined that he was only eligible for benefits prospectively, that he was not eligible for benefits going back to the time he originally applied back in 1982. And the Federal Circuit uh, affirmed on the basis of our deference that the board had properly and fairly interpreted the applicable regulation and that they should defer to that interpretation. So it tees up the question of our quite nicely, even though it's not a tax case that we care most about. Justice Kagan, writing for the majority, spent a lot of time drawing tight boundaries under our while the opinion ultimately sustains our in the future. First, the court underscored that our deference only applies once it's been determined that the regulation is ambiguous. And in this context, that she cautioned that it has to be genuinely ambiguous. And before you jump to a conclusion that a regulation is ambiguous, you must engage in a search for interpretation, applying the traditional tools that you would apply to statutory interpretation, looking at the text, the context, the history, and the evident purpose, before you even get to the question of whether it's ambiguous. And then, assuming it's ambiguous, she cautions that that's not enough either. Even if it's ambiguous, the interpretation that the agency has adopted has to be reasonable. And she suggested that that test of reasonableness is not unlike the Chevron Step 2 analysis that I described earlier, where the court examines whether the interpretation is consistent with a reasonable reading of the statute, or in this case, the regulation. And then the third hurdle that you must clear before our kicks in fully is that you have to examine what the court calls the character and context of the agency interpretation. Under what circumstances did the agency issue the interpretation that they're, they're seeking to rely on now? 
And that goes to whether the interpretation was authoritative or an official position of the agency, so that casual interpretations, and arguably even arguments made on brief and case, which in some cases have suggested that, that a court should defer to an interpretation adopted for the first time on a brief filed in litigation concerning the interpretive question and, and dispute. But anyway, so that the court would have to decide, was this an authoritative interpretation? And if it was, you still need to examine, is the question one that deploys the comparative expertise of the agency? So a classic case is if you have a very highly technical or scientific regulation, and presumably the agency has expertise to know what these terms mean or what they intended them to mean. And in that setting, you know, a court is at a distinct disadvantage to the experts in an agency in attempting to interpret a regulation. And so that would counsel in favor of relying on that. But where that premise is absent, then it's not clear that our deference applies at all. Because like Chevron, our deference is premised on the assumption that in the event of ambiguity, Congress wanted the agency to resolve it. And that predicate doesn't really apply here if the agency doesn't have any particular expertise. And we'll come back to this talking about tax in a minute. And then lastly, the court said before our deference kicks in, the interpretation has to be a fair and considered judgment. And so that would knock out, presumably, interpretations that were simply adopted to support a convenient litigating position or post hoc rationalizations. So before the court even got to the issue in the case, they described our in a way that means that there are significant hurdles that have to be cleared before it could even apply in the base case. Here, the court then addressed the criticisms that have been leveled at the hour deference by members of the minority, in this case, and commentators elsewhere, that our arguably violates the Administrative Procedures Act because under the APA, courts are charged with jurisdiction to decide questions of agency interpretation, uh, to decide what the law is. They also claims that our deference violates the Administrative Procedures Act because it does not require notice and comment for these interpretations that, in the critics' view, have the force and effect of law, it sidesteps the procedural requirements of the APA. There's also policy arguments that have been brought against the hour deference, that it sets up a perverse incentive for an agency to draft ambiguous or sloppy regulations and then come back later when there's an, a live dispute, perhaps, and to take a position that suits their interest at that time. Justice Kagan wasn't buying that. She didn't find that persuasive. She felt that agencies had an institutional incentive in trying to get it right the first time, and that it's inevitable in any human enterprise that there are going to be ambiguities or gaps or things that are anticipated, but that we shouldn't put too much weight or any weight on this policy concern that agencies would go out of their way to do a bad job. And I think she got that right in that instance, especially when you think about tax and the incentives that Treasury has in tax. It's a voluntary compliance system, and Treasury's goal is to enact regulations that provide taxpayers with certainty and guidance that resolves ambiguities. They have a sort of a systematic incentive to not be ambiguous. So when Justice Kagan said, I think that concern is overblown, I, I think that she got that right in tax. What I think is actually a little harder to swallow in the opinion is the inference. The entire premise of any deference is that there is a delegation by Congress, the lawmaker, to an agency to enact some kind of rule or interpret a rule. And the majority infers that there is a kind of implicit blanket delegation to agencies to enact and interpret their own regulations. Now, clearly, Treasury has a blanket delegation to enact rules, but when it comes to interpreting its own rules, that seems to me to be less clear the way 
Justice Kagan postures the issue is she says, well, there's a dichotomy. Who would Congress intend to step in and resolve an ambiguity in a regulation? Would they intend the courts to do it or would they intend the agency to do it? And she says, well, it must be the agency because that's the author of the regulation and they're the ones who are closest to understanding its intent. I think that's a much closer question, particularly in light of the provisions of the APA that give courts jurisdiction to decide questions around agency rulemaking. And it also feeds right into the criticism Justice Gorsuch levels at the opinion that it violates separation of powers, that courts ought to be deciding what the law is, and that agencies ought not to be both writing the rules and then interpreting those rules that they've written. One of the more interesting critiques, I think, that Justice Gorsuch says, this, as the majority has constructed this new set of gates through which you have to navigate in order to obtain our deference, courts are going to have to apply those gates. And I take the long and short of his message to say, you've really made this complicated. And he predicts that in all likelihood, this is going to come back to us as if that's a reason to just simply strike down our deference altogether. That seems to me a bit of a sky is falling prediction in the sense that this is going to come back to the Supreme Court regardless, because if you have our, as you have it currently constructed in this opinion, there are lots of different ways that courts can depart from what the majority intends here and lots of different ways in which there could be a dispute. But if you have no hour, you have courts applying what's presumably Skidmore-type deference to agency interpretations, in which case you have courts deciding what they think is persuasive and what's not, which seems to me like a recipe for lots of circuit splits and the reason for lots of regulatory interpretation review to head up to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts joined the majority here but wrote separately to make a couple of points. One was that he did not see much daylight between our deference as it had been circumscribed by under Justice Kagan's opinion and Skidmore deference. I, I think he's right about that. You'd be hard-pressed to say when our would apply and Skidmore wouldn't or vice versa. It's a very close case. And the dissents argue that it would have been cleaner to simply overturn our and have Skidmore become the default. Chief Justice Roberts also took the position that this opinion should have no implications on the court's future consideration of Chevron. And Justice Kavanaugh, writing a separate dissent, made the same point. We had a, a sort of an interesting discussion about this because it's unclear how to read that. On the one hand, you might read that as them saying that, look, our is safe for now and Chevron is safer. Another way to read that is to say, we have decided our, and that is a discrete question, and we are going to take a harder look at Chevron in the future. Because both Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Thomas has said things in the past that Chevron creates some separation of powers problems. And I think Justice Alito has joined some opinions that portend a possible reconsideration of the Chevron doctrine writ large. Could we end up with a situation like we do with our now where you have it's still there and upheld, but you've added on all the extra hoops that have to be jumped through? Possibly. I mean, what you have with Chevron is what happens in step two. And that's the question. And if you think that lots of the things that factor into the new hour under the Kaiser hour, as it were, are important considerations, those ought to also factor in on Chevron step two. So rather than just looking to see whether the agency has reasonably interpreted its statute, you might 
impose a more stringent requirement that requires the courts to look at whether that's the best interpretation that the agency has given of the statute. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because the court hasn't taken another case to specifically reconsider Chevron, but I think it's also quite possible that a future court could strengthen Chevron step one and call lower courts out for too quickly concluding that there's an ambiguity when the meaning could be found if you just dug a little bit harder and applied the traditional tools of statutory interpretation to avoid the deference issue altogether. All right, so let's bring this back to the world of tax again. And what does this opinion mean for the future of tax regulation? So it's hard to say that it has a lot of influence. I think it's not a non-event. It's certainly not something that should affect the day-to-day of Treasury. In fact, I think the policy statement that we discussed earlier has a much greater influence on what's happening at Treasury, although it is purportedly a statement of how Treasury is and has been doing things. There's an argument looking back at some of the criticism that Treasury endured uh, in the early 2000s from Professor Hickman, who wrote about Treasury's compliance with the APA. So there's reason to think that that actually is a bigger piece that looms for tax regulation than the hour piece. That said, hour is an arrow in the government's quiver. And it's one that even if they pledge not to use it in tax court, it's one that you might expect to see. So we've seen it deployed as recently as March of last year when the government argued for our deference to its interpretation of cost-sharing regulations under Section 482 in the Amazon case. So they argued that the universe of intangibles that are compensable under the cost-sharing regulations included residual business assets like going concern and goodwill. And they argued that our interpretation that the Treasury regulation includes those kinds of assets warrants deference under our and pointed to the TCJA, which was enacted after the years at issue, as evidence that their interpretation was correct. Now, at oral argument, it was sort of an interesting exchange because oral argument happened after Treasury came out with the policy statement. And when the panel confronted DOJ counsel about whether they were actually advocating for our deference, DOJ counsel couldn't have backed off more quickly and said, that's a backup argument. And we don't think you need to decide that in order to get to an answer here. And the panel actually pursued questions questioning because they sort of said, well, if you are pursuing our deference here based on the TCJA, which is enacted 10 years after the years that are at issue here, how could the taxpayer have notice? So even though DOJ did not pursue it, it's still on the table for DOJ in these kinds of circumstances. And this ought to do something in terms of deterring the agency from using that. I would also say that Kaiser's a helpful reminder that tax law is not an island and that if you want to be a government official interpreting the code or if you want to be a judge deciding a case or an advocate advocating a position, you need to be aware of administrative law principles and recognize that the administrative law landscape is changing as we speak. And so in order to be an effective in all those roles, you need to be up on these, these developments. And one other point that I think is worth thinking about for tax professionals is that our contemplates agencies 
act under the auspices of some sort of scientific or technical expertise. And that's certainly the case that Treasury has expertise and brings expertise to bear on the issues that are before it. But it's hard to argue that Treasury brings greater expertise to interpreting its own regulations than the whole bench of the tax court, who are all tax professionals and who have given a great deal of thought and energy into harmonizing regulations and harmonizing the code and interpreting it in a way that makes sense. And moreover, there are certain instances where Treasury is regulating things that arguably taxpayers themselves have as much, if not more, insight into. So I mentioned Amazon in 482. The issue there was about what would parties pay for at arm's length? Well, the taxpayers are the ones that are out interacting in the market and actually purchasing things <laughs> at arm's length. So they have some insight into what is arm's length that perhaps Treasury doesn't always have. So there's some interesting questions in what's left of our about what kind of scientific or technical expertise an agency brings to bear on, on questions of interpretation. All right. Well, there's definitely some things to keep an eye on. Steve, Kevin, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us. And now, instead of coming attractions, I'm joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith, with a special announcement. Are you interested in writing for Tax Notes? Tax Notes has been the leading provider of tax news and analysis for close to 50 years. Becoming a Tax Notes contributor gives you an unparalleled opportunity to reach a highly influential and select community of tax professionals. To learn more, visit www.taxnotes.com forward slash acquisitions. Thank you, Jasper. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.